Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. A blessed Holy Thursday to all of you this April the 14th, as the light of Jesus shines on us from the final words of Christ's passion from Matthew 27. There's a lot in here that, that we've heard many times. We've looked at these words, we've evaluated these words, and what a joy it is to go through them one more time, especially as tonight we celebrate Holy Thursday, as we look to Good Friday and look to the final culmination of the empty tomb on Easter morning. This is something that we've been waiting for. This is the highlight of who we are as Christians. And really, when we look at the cross, We've been talking this week about how we have to let the cross do the talking. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Let the cross do the talking as it is the central part of our faith. So open up your Bibles. Up, see, the, see, see the Lord on the cross for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's word this Holy Thursday, we welcome back regular guest, Pastor Tom Eckstein of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor Eckstein, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Great to be here. Pastor, tell us what's going on for you this Holy Week, uh, your family, and the work of the saints at Concordia. Yeah, well, like most everyone else, we have a Monday-Thursday service in the evening and Good Friday. And then uh, on Easter, uh, we we uh, actually have an Easter sunrise service. Uh, we're, we're, rather than our regular 8 o'clock service in the morning, uh, we have two services normally, but rather than an early 8 o'clock, we're actually having a 7 o'clock service. And then, and then we have Easter breakfast and then uh, Sunday school and then our, our usual 1030 service. Uh, but we're looking forward to it as usual. Absolutely. Can't wait to say the Alleluia's on Sunday. So how's your family? Doing real well. In fact, recently, uh, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, my son and his wife and, and their two children, our, our, our two uh, grandchildren, uh, uh, visited us. And my son is actually a director of Christian education in Augusta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they came to visit us uh, for a week. And um, thankfully, there was still a little snow left. Uh, for our three and a half year old, uh, she she had never seen snow because you know her whole three years of life has been in Augusta, Georgia. So, uh, um, uh, but uh, most of the snow on the ground was gone, but we had this huge pile of snow at the end of our street because we live live at the end of a dead end street, and so whenever they would clean the streets, they would just push it there. So we had this massive hill of snow. So she was able to see that; she was just in awe. So, <laughs> and you know, for us this week, it's. Uh, the last couple of weeks here in Minnesota, at least, it's been this constant, like just a little snow and then it melts by one o'clock and a little bit of right. snow and it melts by one o'clock. For us, there's no awe, you know, no, there's no more awe here in Minnesota. It's time for it to be gone. <laughs> so anyways, it's yeah. good to hear time with our family. Yeah, it was good to have them visit. The, the only other thing that we're excited about, we're anticipating is our, our youngest child, our daughter. Uh, she's married to a fort 
Wayne Seminarian uh, finishing his fourth year. Oh, okay. So he'll be finding out the end of April where his uh, uh, first placement is going to be. So wow. we're, we're, we're kind of excited to find out where they'll end up serving too. So. Very good. Either may it be a place that is really fun to visit or nearby family, right? Isn't that kind of how yeah. that should be? The Holy Spirit should work in that way. <laughs> Anyways, very good. Well, Pastor, it's a joy to be with you on this day, this Holy Week. And uh, can you begin our time in prayer? Yes. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you uh, uh, during this Holy Week when uh, we, we really focus on the center of, of the entire scriptures. Uh, your son giving his life as a ransom for many. Um, Lord, as we read through your holy scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what we really see is that you're on a rescue mission. Uh, you're coming into this world. Uh, to save us who have rebelled against you, that we might be your own forever. And and so on the cross, we really see your heart, uh, a God who loves his enemies and is even willing to sacrifice his son that we might be forgiven and, and live with you forever. So um, open our hearts uh, to, to hear what your son has to teach us uh, as he speaks words from the cross uh, in this text we're about to study today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions concerning our text, uh, Matthew 27, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Now, Pastor, let's start this way this morning is these are very familiar words from verse 45 of Matthew 27 all the way till the end of the chapter in verse 66. This is, like you said, the, the center of our faith. This is who we are as Christians. This shows us God and his love for his people. So let's start this way. How, As we look at this once again, what is your encouragement or what are good things for us to remember as we once again look at the cross? Well, one thing, is, especially in our modern world where you have a lot of skeptics, um, you know, uh, mentioning uh the Bible this time of year as well, but the, they really don't understand it or in some cases just mock it. <laughs> and what we have to remember is that, that our Lord, no one forced him to go to the cross. Um, mm. You know, he could have used his almighty power to incinerate his enemies if he chose, uh, but he's there willingly uh, suffering uh, for us. Um, you, you think earlier in Matthew's gospel of, at the, in, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus talks about how he came to serve which I believe is an allusion to Isaiah 53, the servant of God, mm. who, who, who came to suffer in our place of judgment. And so Jesus says in Matthew 20, I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So uh, the cross was always part of God's plan. Um, in, in all the sacrifices in the Old Testament that were offered on the altar were pictures of what God's Son would ultimately do to save us from our sins. And uh, and, and here's a real mystery, um, Pastor Painter, that, um, you know, uh, God knew in advance that his people would reject him. God knew in advance that the Romans would put his son on the cross. But that didn't stop God from offering his son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I had mentioned in one sermon once, I said, you know, what if the Jews hadn't rejected Jesus? What if, what if the pilot had set him free? And of course, I'm speculating here, but uh, since it was always God's plan to sacrifice his son for us, uh, I mentioned in the sermon once, you know, if, if no one had rejected Jesus, if, if they had actually believed in him, then I believe on, on Good Friday, he would have walked to the temple, he would have walked into the Holy of Holies, and the Father would have sacrificed his son for us. Mm. Uh, 
Now, of course, it didn't work out that way because God knew in advance that, um, you know, uh, the, the Jews would, would bring him to Pilate and so on and so forth. But when we look at the cross, that's really the altar on which the father is sacrificing his son. You know, so often we hear people ask, well, who really killed Jesus? You know, was it, was it the Jews? Was it Pilate? Was it the Romans? Well, yeah, they were part of the process, but theologically, it was actually the father. Uh, it was the Father who offered His Son for us that we might be His own forever. So we have to remember that awesome mystery as we read through the text today. And that's a great reminder because of Genesis three fifteen. You know, it, it brings up that that battle between the woman and her offspring, and the, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise his head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, you have that language uh, that you will crush his head, and you shall bruise his heel from the NIV back in the day. So you're right. There is that, you know, a lot of speculation you gave there, but it does bring back to this fact that there had to be a sacrifice and that sacrifice was his only son. Um, I love, that's a great reminder for us. Cause we always like do this scenario. It's like, well, what if this would have happened? What if this would have happened? And at the end of it, we still needed a redeemer and our Lord gave it to us. So uh, pastor, anything else you want to, uh, to start us off? Well, that's it for now. I'll have plenty to say when we get into that. <laughs> Very good. So let's begin. We'll just go a few verses at a time so we really dig in this morning. Uh, so we're reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew 27, beginning at the 45th verse. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sapachthane. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pastor, I'm going to stop there because this is significant to the whole narrative of the cross. So Jesus is, it's around noon, if I look at that correctly. It's dark, and he quotes some words. And, I, you know, I've heard different guys pronounce it in different ways. How do you usually pronounce that? Um, you were very close. I, I, I used to say, Eli, Eli, Lemu Sabakani. So you, you were Tani. very you close go. to that. There you go. Yeah. So, so what, is he, what is he quoting? What is he, what is he saying? Well, this is important because uh, I remember um, I had a, a, a young member in, in the 20s, in her 20s, come up to me several years ago after a Holy Week service. And she said, I don't understand something, Pastor. I said, what? Well, Jesus is God. I know he's fully human, but he's also fully God. And yet it sounds like he, he has doubt and uh, on the cross, you know, that, that he's questioning why he's even there, even though he knew in advance that he was going to go there. What What's going on here? And, uh, and it dawned on me, you know, unless people realize what Jesus is doing here, this could re- be really confusing. I mean, it's like Jesus even told his apostles in advance, yeah, I'm going to go to the cross and I'll rise again. And now it sounds like Jesus is questioning the purpose of the whole thing. What's going on here? Well, actually, what we need to know is that Jesus is quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. And and when you look at the whole context, I would argue, even though Matthew records him saying this once, uh, there's no reason to think he didn't say it multiple times. Um, and, uh, what I think Jesus is doing here when you look at the context is he's actually, even though he's suffering more than we can imagine, he's still thinking of us. He's still thinking of the people who are in watching him die. He's preaching a sermon to them. Mm. He's preaching to them in the hope of winning their hearts. And, and so what he's doing is he's quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, asking them to think about that Psalm and consider that it's being fulfilled right in front of them. And what's interesting 
is if you go just a few verses earlier in Matthew 27, verse 43, let me just read that. Um, here, here you have uh, the, the um, Jewish leaders mocking him, and they say the following. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now, what's very interesting is that is almost a word for word uh, quote of Psalm 22, verse 8. I find that very interesting, which suggests to me that Jesus had actually been saying this several times already. It's just that Matthew mentions it the first time in verse 46. So, uh, I, I'm guessing that when Jesus is saying this, he's telling them, think about Psalm 22 and what it means. Oh, well, what does it mean? Two things. Uh, uh, Jesus is not suffering as somebody who was forsaken by God and rejected by him. That's what the, the Jews thought. Uh, if you think of Isaiah 53, you know, it mentions how, well, the people thought I was forsaken by God, but in reality, I was an innocent, suffering servant. It was God's will to put our sin on him. So Jesus isn't being punished because he himself is guilty. Uh, he's being punished because he's bearing our guilt. So he is the innocent suffering servant. And you see that in Psalm 22. Um, but here's the other thing. Psalm 22 ends in victory. The one who is apparently being forsaken from the world's point of view ends up being victorious. So what, what Jesus is saying here is not only... Not only am I up here according to God's will to pay for your sin, to suffer your judgment, but I'm going to rise again. This is going to end up victorious for me. Um, and and uh, when the people realize that that's what he's claiming for himself, they just mock him all the more. Okay. And and one last thing, uh, you know, as you read, as you're going to read on here in Matthew, uh, the people say, "Well, he's calling Elijah." Well, what does that mean? Well, some people think that that the crowds misheard him when he said, Eli, Eli. Some people think that they misheard him uh, calling for Elijah. And maybe that's the case, but I, I think it's something else. Um, the, the Bible teaches, you get this at the end of Malachi, that the Jews always understood that, that when the Messiah comes, Elijah the prophet would, would appear and affirm and confirm his Messiahship. So if Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 and thereby claiming to be the Messiah, then Elijah should be showing up. <laughs> and so the Jews are saying, oh, he thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks um, uh, uh, Elijah is going to come and confirm his Messiahship. Well, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And, and so they realize exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of Psalm 22, but they don't believe it. And they just continue to mock him all the more. You see that language throughout the mocking, the questions. Uh, a lot of times it's the devil that gets it right. <laughs> They're the ones that, you know, we have Matthew 16 with, with Peter getting it right. And then obviously later on, you know, not, not doing so well in that same way. Same way. However, here, I, I love how you brought that back to Psalm 22 and not only the suffering, but also the victor victorious nature of that psalm, which is why I encourage our listeners to go back to Psalm 22. I know for our church, we will hear it once again on Holy Thursday, like today. And it's just a great one for you to really focus in on. As For us, we, we quote it while we're stripping the altar. And it's a really powerful psalm because it really puts the tapestry, the, the, the whole narrative together into one. And it does not end with, 
well, he died. That's terrible. You know, it definitely ends in victory. And that does make sense how you laid that together, that, that this was God's word was being used to mock him as well. So anything else on those uh, first few verses? Well, I have more, but we'll, 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 I'll comment when we go on. Gotcha. We'll go 47 and we'll go all the way to 50. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. One thing that struck me about this, uh, Pastor Eckstein, is that it's, it doesn't get into a lot of narrative. There's not a lot of words. Other Gospels get into that. And I don't like comparing too much when we look at this, but it is, it's very simplistic. It's just a kind of a bare-bones story. So, so tell us, what, what is happening in these verses? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I believe Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, um, getting the people to think of the whole psalm, which it appears they do think of the whole psalm, because like I said earlier, uh, the Jewish leaders actually quote from Psalm 22, verse 8. So it's obvious that, that they realize Jesus wants them to think of the whole Psalm and, and, and see that it's being fulfilled in him. But of course they don't believe it. Uh, they don't really think Elijah is going to come and confirm that he's the Messiah. They, 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 they mock him. And then uh, there's this interesting thing here. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Um, uh, I'm going to give you my take on this. Others, you know, there, there's been a lot of debate and, and spilled ink on what's going on here. Um, there are some people who think, oh, there, there's at least one guy who is showing Jesus a little compassion here, you know, mm-hmm. giving him a, a little bit of a drink. <laughs> but there's nothing in the text here that suggests anyone was feeling sorry for Jesus. So rather than seeing this as an act of compassion, uh, I see it as just a further mockery. Uh, first of all, um, the, the kind of uh, wine mixed with gall, a very bitter drink, uh, that's not the thing you want to give somebody when they're parched and right. thirsty. Right. Right. <laughs> it, it, it was just a, another way. It would be like, you know, uh, you know I, I, I'm, I'm just dying of thirst and someone gives me some, you know, uh, a vinegary oh. apple juice, you know, oh. bitter. Yeah. It would be horrible. <laughs> and then, but, but here's the other thing. And I've done, and I, I, I want to be careful here because I, I can't, this, I'm not going to say this is absolutely the case, but I think there's a good argument for it. Why a sponge? And I've done some research on this, and, um, uh, and again, we have to be careful that, that this is not the absolute truth. I can't prove it. But there's a lot of historical evidence that what was the purpose of a sponge, especially out there? They, they were outside the city. Uh, they were standing on this hill. Uh, long story short, in that day and age, it was common to um, clean oneself after one went to the bathroom by using a sponge soaked in an- antiseptic liquid. And in other words, some have argued that, that, you know, here you have these Roman soldiers standing out there for hours. They need to relieve themselves and they need to clean themselves afterwards. So they use a sponge soaked in an antiseptic liquid. And uh, if, if that's true, then this just adds to the mockery. Mm. It's like sticking this gross thing in Jesus' face as just another way of humiliating him. Now, whether that's the case or not, you know, uh, uh, you know, we can ask God one day, I guess. But the point is, everything here 
suggests that there was no compassion for Jesus. They, they were mocking him. And what's interesting, too, is that, that the, the whole um, giving him gall to drink is also uh, a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22 talks about how they, 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 they gave me gall you know, to drink. And, and, and so, uh, here we see again, uh, examples of how Psalm 22 is being fulfilled before their very eyes. And so as we look at that, there's, there's this wonderful reality of Jesus continuously saying, this must be done to fulfill the scriptures. And that is exactly what he's doing here. It's, it's fascinating. And it's really, to me, very comforting to think about that, that Jesus might have uh, quoted the whole thing, like you said, that it definitely was on these on their lips. It is something that they used, um, not in an appropriate way, not done in faith. But it is very comforting to me that that this is something that he might have said often or to more than a few times, and it was to fulfill the scriptures every step along the way. Plus, it reminds me of that the humiliation, you know, that we have his humiliation and his exaltation. That even if that sponge dynamic is not exactly true, there definitely is a very big humiliation aspect to this, and to realize even more so how much he did this for you and I, so that we are not humiliated, but that we are um, right in his eyes. And Pastor, verse forty-nine. Um, they say this, because you've mentioned this, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. But wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. It's kind of a you know connection to verse 47. Any thoughts on, on their words when they said that? Well, again, I, I, and, and again um, we don't get a specific uh, confirmation of this in the text, yeah. but um, uh, uh, it, it, some might have misunderstood him when he said, Eli, Eli, like, oh, he's asking for the prophet Elijah to come and save him. But I still think uh, they understood exactly what he was saying, and and they're thinking more in terms of of the prophet Malachi, where uh, the prophet Elijah will confirm the Messiah. Now, of course, we know how that is fulfilled. John the Baptist is the Elijah <laughs> that right. confirms that Jesus is the Savior. Uh, we we know that as as Jesus uh, uh, teaches us that. But you know, here I believe they're they're saying, well, if he's quoting Psalm twenty two and applying it to himself, and he's claiming to be the Messiah, then Elijah should show up and confirm that. Let's see if it happens. So I think that's what's what's going on here. By the way, what, one brief correction I want to make to myself: I just realized I had a, 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 a an error here when I mentioned earlier that the the wine and the gall was from Psalm twenty two. Actually, no, that's from Psalm sixty nine. I meant to say that. Oh, okay. Okay. And, yeah, and um, but but this just is another example. You just mentioned, you know, Jesus is saying you get this especially in Matthew's gospel. This all happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So, so even though um, you know, Jesus doesn't specifically mention Psalm sixty nine here. Uh, this is definitely allusion to that. Uh, 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 and then, of course, in, in the other gospels, when Jesus mentions "I thirst," you know that 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 can be an allusion to one of the Psalms too. So we see. We see the scriptures being fulfilled in what Jesus is doing here. And it's a very simple ending to this in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's just no words that we know. There's, there's not much there. Um, but he yielded up his spirit. So it's very simple. That's one thing I'm noticing here in the um, crucifixion of Christ. It just seems to kind of be a very simple um, rendition. But yet... This is significant as well. Verse 50, tell us about it. Yes, in fact, um, one thing I want to point out here, we're going to get this 
in a little bit as you read on, but the fact that he yielded up his spirit, he, he chose the moment of his death. And that's interesting because in, in Mark's gospel, when we um, get the account of the centurion, uh, it says when the centurion saw the way that he died, he said, this was the son of God. And I think what's interesting about that, I mean, I, there, there were many things here that I'm sure that awed the centurion, because in a bit you're going to read about, you know, all the, the the cosmic things that are going on at Jesus' death. But um, but the, the whole point of the crucifixion is that the, the people on the cross wanted to die. The whole point of crucifixion was to draw out death and suffering as long as possible. Mm-hmm. I, I bet you people on the cross, if they could have just willed themselves to die, they would have gladly done that, but they couldn't. That's just the point of crucifixion. You wanted to die, but it went on for hours. So I'm thinking when this guy, the centurion, saw Jesus basically say, okay, it's all done now, I'm dead, and just chose the moment of his death. I think that was one of many things mm-hmm. that showed the centurion that, wow, this is no ordinary guy. And so he cries out, and, and this is why I want to stick to the text we have, yields up his spirit, and then we have a very dramatic moment that happens after this. But I want to make sure that there's anything else we wanted to highlight about the death of Christ uh, itself. No, we'll keep going. All right, so 51, and we'll go through 54, well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Fifty one through fifty three. Before we get to the centurion, fifty one. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, here, Pastor, we have. Some I have to admit this whole tomb opening thing that I I was I was a I think it was in college maybe the end of college before I ever even remember hearing of this at all. Yeah. So before we get to that, the curtain is something like you said before. There's a lot of ink spilt on some of these realities. How would you proclaim and teach on the curtain temple being torn in two? Yes. Well, uh, if people are wondering what that's all about, there was this huge curtain that hung in front of the Holy of Holies, which is a reminder that, hey, you just can't waltz back beyond the Holy of Holies. You know, this is uh, a place that only the high priest can go uh, at specific times during the year. And, and if you go there just willy-nilly, you could die. God, God looks after you. There, there's this, the symbolism is that um, there's a separation between us and God because of our sin. Sinners cannot be in the full presence of the Holy God. Uh, and, uh, of course, Jesus' sacrifice changes all that, okay? Um, when, when Jesus uh, offers the sacrifice for our sin, now there's no more separation. And so the, the, the curtain being torn, which I believe was done by God himself, was, was his sign that, that all those Old Testament sacrifices now, which were just pictures of the real one, uh, now it's been fulfilled and uh, no more separation. And, and, and one way I've preached on this is that, you know, we, throughout the Old Testament, we hear about God's uh, Shekinah glory dwelling in the Holy of Holies. I believe this is God's way of saying, okay, now that the sacrifice has been offered, uh, my glory is going to seek a new temple. And, and what do we find out in the New Testament? Um, the new temple is, is, is us, the church. Uh, Christ comes to, to dwell in us that, that intimately. Uh, 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 those who believe in him 
and uh, are beneficiaries of, of his saving work, we are now his temple. That, that's how close God is to us now. And when you think of how on Monday, Thursday, we, we eat Christ's body and drink Christ's blood in the Lord's Supper, you know, uh, uh, you can't get more intimate and close to God than that. So I think that's what's going on here with the whole curtain thing. So that, that understanding of that he, he breaks down the separation of God and man, that we are fully accessible to him in Christ. And like you said, the greatest way of seeing that is what happens today is, is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, that, and that's very dramatic as, as we see that. And then the next scene, the tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Give you a little side note on this, Pastor, is uh, the first time I heard about this, and I heard about it, but then like one of the moments I remember it coming back was on the Walking Dead show when it talked about zombies. <laughs> and they walk into this church, and they had that little, you know, the hymn board. And it literally had on that hymn board all the resurrection accounts in the Bible. And this was the first one, Matthew 27, 52 to 53, blatantly <laughs> on there. And I'm probably one of the only people that noticed that those were the, the somebody had intentionally put those up there. But that's what I remember. And you know what, Pastor? I made a mistake. We're past our time. I need We need to take our break. We'll talk about that on the other end. We are studying Matthew 27 with Pastor Tom Eckstein. And we'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back. We are studying Matthew 27 with Pastor Tom Eckstein of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor, 52 and 53 kind of puts a little bit of what? What's happening here? Uh, and, and like I said, we could misinterpret it from a, a zombie movie or a zombie show or something. But what, what's happening in these two verses? Well, first of all, Matthew is the only gospel that mentions this event. None of the others do. And, and, and this is where we see that even though all four gospels are, are certainly complementary, they all each have their own unique take, too. Uh, uh, and uh, like, for example, John's gospel is the only one that mentions Lazarus and, and Jesus raising him from the dead. Well, here, Matthew is the only one that mentions this. And um, what we're seeing here is that um, uh, the way I understand the flow of these verses is that when Jesus uh, rises from the dead uh, on the third day, just as he said he would, um, there, uh, this is sort of what I think is, is Matthew's version of, 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 of a Lazarus miracle. You know, just as Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, here at, at Jesus' own resurrection, there are some other people who are now uh, raised from the dead. Not everybody, I think it's just a sample, uh, but there, there were some people who uh, in the immediate area 
who uh, were believers and had died. And at Christ's resurrection, um, Matthew says many of them, we don't know how many, but were resurrected. And then they come into the city and appear to many people. Now, um, uh, first of all, I don't think they were zombies. <laughs> <laughs> just a very uh, uh, Well, what, what they looked like, I don't know. I, I just would like to know uh, how, how the people would react. It's like, I, I can imagine some kid, hey, hey, Ma, Grandma's outside. Um, but she's been dead for eight years. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. And, and uh, just this miracle. And, um, you know, uh, and how much these people knew why they were alive again. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, but but obviously, this was just one of many signs. There's other signs going on here, too. You know, we have the, the, the earthquake, uh, the rock splitting. Um, we know that there, you know, was darkness uh, even before this. So there's some cosmic things happening here. But the fact that, 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 that some other people are brought back from the dead when Jesus is resurrected is yet another sign that, that this was a a, a, a focal central point in the uh, salvation history uh, of God. You know, th- this was uh, one of, of several signs to get people's attention that, hey, something significant happened here. It, it, I think it is that simple. It's, it's no different than Lazarus being raised. You have many other examples of a young girl, young boy, others that were raised from the dead because of Christ. And here it's the same thing. And uh, it's very yeah, there's a lot of questions uh, because it's only one here, but this is his Lazarus story, which once again, you know, like Lazarus, he's been in the tomb for four days. Um, there's not much hope of him being able to save himself. It's over. And the same thing here. There's not much hope of these people who were in the tombs and that would have been who knows how long, but it would have been a significant amount of time that their only hope for resurrection is Christ. And that's the same for us. Daily, as we read about in baptism, um, that we die in Christ and rise to him. And also, obviously, when it's our time uh, of death, that we have the hope of a resurrection. So let's get to the centurion. This is a this is a great part of this whole, and you've kind of wet our palate a little bit, as you were talking about before. So 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So we get a, a great confession. Tell us about it. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, we have examples of Gentiles. Uh, you know, Jesus says, boy, I, I haven't seen this great of faith even in Israel. And, and we have some examples in Matthew's gospel of Gentiles who get it, even though the Jewish leaders don't. And and here we have again another example. Here, here this Roman soldier, and we don't know how much he knew about the you know uh, uh, the, the scriptures and what was going on. But but just like the father, if you read Matthew sixteen, uh, just like the father uh, reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Son of the Living God. Now we have a Gentile, uh, a Roman centurion. The father gives him this insight as well. And and I think it's interesting, you know, not only. Do you have all these signs from God that something unique is happening? You know, you have the earthquake and then these interesting words when they saw what took place. Now, again, I mentioned how in Mark's gospel, it actually gets a little more specific. It says when the centurion saw the way or how Jesus died. And I I still can't help but think that when when he's watching Jesus and there's this earthquake and there's this darkness, and then suddenly Jesus just said, okay, uh, it's finished. We're done now. And he, gives his spirit to the father and he dies. 
you know. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you know, the, the other thieves on the cross would have loved to choose to die. You know, they were suffering horribly. But again, the whole point of crucifixion is that it would just draw out your death. People would cry to be killed. I've read um, historical documents where they would, people on crosses would beg the soldiers to kill them, but they wouldn't because, hey, we're going to make you suffer as long as possible because, you know, uh, uh, you can't decide when you're going to die. We're going to make it, you know, as agonizing as possible for you. The fact that Jesus just says, okay, sacrifice is done now. Here's my spirit, Father. I think, you know, that and all the other things that were going on just uh, confirmed to this Roman centurion, you know, this was not an ordinary man. Uh, he probably had heard some people say that, you know, the Jewish priests earlier had said, well, he said he was the son of God. Well, now this Roman centurion is saying, yeah, and I think he really was. And this is, I mean, this is very helpful as the task for all of us as Christians, as we interpret interpret the Bible we sue the lens of Christ and we take it for what it is, especially when sometimes we get muddled in the realities of each of the gospel accounts, which is why it's, it's, it's been great for us just to focus in on Matthew, that he cried out again, which is not abnormal to the other gospel accounts. But when it says the word yielded up his spirit, that really does bring us back to this understanding of Jesus could have died whenever he wanted to die. <laughs> <laughs> because yes. he's Jesus. And yes. and that would have been a witness to that where often I've heard it more of, well, because he was flogged, he didn't live as long, which obviously his body was a human body. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying right. any of that reality. But it is very profound that that would have been a witness to the centurion yeah. and those with him. Like, wait a second, that's not normal. And then him to confess what everybody else was asking. Are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? And he's like, you know what? He was. What a oh man, that is that is really wonderful for us to be able to see, especially as we go into tomorrow night and hear that message again. Anything else, Pastor, on that? Uh, that's it. I could always say more, but we got more to cover. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Verse fifty-five, and we'll just do these two simple verses because this is important also for the resurrection account. Verse fifty-five. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It's a little insertion here. It says, by the way, the women are here and some significant women in the scriptures. What are your thoughts? Yeah, a, a lot of Marys here. In fact, <laughs> we, we know from John's gospel that, that the, the mother of Jesus um, herself, uh, Mary, the mother of our Lord, was there, too. We, we think of Jesus saying, you know, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And um, um, But here we see, you know, uh, in that day, I think this is another important thing. In that day, uh, women were, were, were considered a second-class citizen. Um, their, their, their testimonies were not even considered valid in court. Uh, they, they, they just weren't considered to be very important people. And yet here, uh, Matthew exalts them as the people who are getting it. You know, you have the chief priests, the scribes who should have known better. You know, they were the, the intellectuals of the day. They should have known that Jesus was fulfilling scripture. But here you, you have these, these women who were probably just, you know, uh, on the margin of society. And yet they're the ones here who see the truth. 
and uh, as, as we're going to see when we read on too in Matthew's account, you know, they're they're they play an important role in uh, after the resurrection as well. Let's continue as Jesus is buried. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in a new tomb, which had been cut in a rock. Then he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So we we hear about Joseph of Arimathea, um, a disciple of Jesus, and kind of, you know, Pilate re-enters. I mean, that's something that I think many people don't realize is that Pilate... When he washed his hands, his work was still not done with all of this. So break this right. part down, because this this is a fascinating part of the, the crucifixion. Yes, and you know what's interesting here, uh, again, uh, all these subtle allusions to Scripture. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the of course, Psalm 22 being fulfilled, and then uh, giving Jesus wine to drink from Psalm 69. And then, um, but here, you know, I, why, why would... Um, Matthew Glava's way to mention that Jesus is placed in another guy's tomb, and and not just any tomb, but a tomb that would have been reserved only for the very wealthy. In fact, we know from history that most, if not all, people who were crucified were just thrown into a mass grave. Uh, they, they didn't get any special burial at all. So the fact that Jesus is given this this pristine immaculate tomb. Um, not only is this uh, showing how much Joseph of Arimathea respected Jesus, but it's a fulfillment of scripture. If you remember Isaiah 53 again, there's this reference to how the suffering servant um, has a tomb among the rich. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, it's almost like Matthew wants us to make a connection with Isaiah 53. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 it really explains, because like, if you read a certain part of the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection, and you don't read this part, there's a lot of things you don't really see. One, it was cut into a rock, right? They rolled this great stone at the entrance. And, and, and there's this connection of whose grave was this exactly? Like, did, did Mary and Joseph have a grave for him, whatever it might be? And I think it tells us a little bit about Pilate, that Pilate washed his hands of it, but he definitely was not, he was not with the Romans. He was not like, hey, you know, I'm with you guys. I'm not going to allow any kind of grace or any kind of situation of, of a decent burial for Jesus or anything along those lines. And so I'm not trying to dig too much into Pilate, but he still does play a role to um, at least give some dignity to this whole story. Any thoughts on that? I, his insertion, again, to me is interesting. Well, it's interesting. Just the other week I preached on Pilate. And, um, you know, um, obviously he, he compromised his integrity. He knew Jesus was in, innocent. And even then he had him flogged, which was a horrible, horrible thing to undergo. And then, of course, ultimately had him crucified, even though he knew he was innocent. So I can't help but think that at this point, he maybe has a little bit of pang of conscience. It's like, boy, after all that I did to this innocent man, I guess the least I can do is let one of his disciples put him in a decent tomb. You know? right. And um, so I'm sure that's what's going on here. And so as we look at uh, the rest of our time, I just want to make sure, because this last portion is something that it, it, it really just rehashes our the reality that... Um, 
people knew that he had promised that he would be resurrected. He says it four times yeah. in the and oh excuse me three times. He says four times that he would be crucified, three times that he would be risen from the dead or the son of man would be right. risen from the dead. So people knew this rumor was out there, this proclamation was there. So before we get to that, is there anything else you wanted to highlight with the cross and Jesus's burial? Well, only that um, uh, uh, God is now using Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea to to set up a situation where, you know, the, the goal, as you're going to see in a bit, the goal of the Jewish leaders is to make sure that this, 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 you know, little rumor that Jesus will rise from the dead, that there's no way it's going to happen. But, uh, of course, in their minds, they're thinking, well, the disciples will come and steal his body, da, 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 da. But because of the way things are set up now, it, 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 it creates a situation where there's no way they can disprove the resurrection. It's like you, you have a stone rolled in front of the tomb. You have uh, these the soldiers in front of the tomb. You, you, there's no way the disciples could have come and, and gone through the soldiers to steal the body. And, and even if they had, why would they lie about it? And, and die as a result. I mean, the way this is now set up, this whole scenario that God allows to unfold is why modern day skeptics still have such a hard time disproving the resurrection. Not only was the tomb empty, not, not only did they never produce a corpse, um, um, but there were hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus alive again. And, and there's no uh, reasonable way to even suggest why the disciples would have stolen his body. It wouldn't have made any sense. Um, if they really believed that uh, Jesus was dead after telling them that he would rise again, uh, why would they even continue to follow Jesus? I mean, this whole scenario that we're about to see unfold is God's way of showing the world he is risen. There's no doubt about it. So let's dig into that. It is it is interesting for, for you, our listeners, and for all of us, is the attempts, as we read these next verses, the attempts by the, the leaders to prevent people from thinking that he's resurrected are exactly the reason to prove why he was resurrected. It's a it's fascinating dynamic as we see it happen, which shows once again, this was according to God's will. Verse 62, and we'll go to the end. The next day, that is, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the chief priests and Pharisees are still not satisfied, which I find interesting. They're still not satisfied. They're still worried about their control and power, and they clearly had heard the message of Christ. So your, your thoughts on the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, even though they, these are supposed to be the, the, the educated guys, they're a little bit clueless here at this point. You know, if they're, they're really worried that the disciples would steal the body, they're not thinking very clearly. You know, uh, Jesus had told his disciples multiple times, I'm going to rise from the dead. Well, if he's dead, 
and he he uh, uh, isn't coming back to life again. If, if, if his disciples really think that, uh, the, the only motive they would have in stealing the body is if they thought he's really dead and he's not coming back to life. Why would they perpetuate that lie? They wouldn't get anything out of it. If anything, if they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise again, they would probably just run away in despair and and maybe even become bitter. It's like, boy, we followed this guy for three years and he turned out to be a fraud. I mean, there would really be no motivation for them to steal the body whatsoever. They wouldn't get anything out of it. In fact, we know that after uh, Jesus rises from the dead and they do proclaim uh, what they witnessed that because they saw Jesus alive again. You know, what do they get out of it? Did they get riches and fame and glory? No, nothing but persecution and death. So uh, they really had no motivation to even steal the body. And even if they had tried, as we read, as they, they, they put a seal on the stone, which was Caesar's seal. It's like, boy, you break this, you're going to die in the most of horrible way possible. And then, of course, you have the Roman guards there, which would be like putting a platoon of Marines in, in front of the tomb. No way just a few, you know, blue-collar, you know, disciples are going to break through that to get to the body. So the Jews really, uh, obviously, they don't believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. What they don't realize is God is using their stupidity and their arrogance to create a situation where the resurrection is, is obvious to all and no one can disprove it. And that's a good point because that is one of the realities of when you talk about the disciples, why would they be willing after the resurrection to die for the sake of Christ? If Christ was not risen from the dead, why would they be willing to go through such pain and awful suffering? A lot of times, what we, for tradition's sake, peacefully to die for something that wasn't even true, let alone with that, why would they try to make up a lie that was not true, why would they have that kind of conviction? It would be safer to go to the hills. It would be safer to go to a different country and just hang out because the reality is they failed. And you could try to make it up, but you would have no uh, opportunity to really, how you say it, have any any backing whatsoever for it. People would just say, you know what, that guy died. He didn't rise. We didn't see him. You're done. Shower up. You know, you're done. But, but yeah. here they totally didn't understand the dynamics. Of course, I mean, we had to sympathize. We wouldn't understand them as well. But they tried to do everything they could to prevent people from believing. So, like you said, you put out the Marines. I wonder this, and I, I don't know if you know this. I haven't looked this part up, and I just realized it here, is how would they seal the stone? Because it always says that the stone is there. But to seal it, any any insight on that? I guess I didn't look that part up. Um. Well, I, I, I don't know that um, so much that they... they it says here that lest his disciples go and steal him away. Um, obviously, they, they would have to, to to move the stone to do that, which is all the more incredible because, you know, it goes on in, in Matthew, as, as you know, I don't want to steal the thunder from a future program, but as you know that when Jesus is risen, uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, leaders want the guards to lie and say that they were asleep, which of course they don't want to do because that's a death sentence for them. Right. But but even imagine they were asleep. So his disciples are, are supposed to tiptoe through these sleeping guards and then roll away this huge stone and not wake any of them up. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, because that's how that so, would happen, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this whole thing, God allows to be set up 
to, to show that there's no way to disprove the resurrection. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, and especially, uh, uh, I'm going to be mentioning this on Easter Sunday, um, you know, uh, uh, we see that there were multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. He stayed on the earth for 40 days after he rose from the dead, appeared to multiple people on multiple occasions, over 500 people at once. So uh, there's, you know, I always try to tell my youth in confirmation, you know, the, the Gospels, the New Testament, it's not fairy tales. These are written by people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and miracles and death and resurrection. And, and so we have eyewitness historical testimony here. So, Pastor, we have a few minutes left in our time. As we come upon Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot that we will be taking in. And for, for many of our listeners, that they've, they've done this many times. You know, it's like, wow, that's what I do. We go have hot crust buns after, you know, we do this. We, we paint our Easter eggs. You know, we have some eggs, you know, before, you know, like you said, you have an Easter breakfast and all that. What would your encouragement be to those, um, first of all, to go uh, to, to worship this week, but also as they go to reflect and to just recenter themselves to what our Lord has done on the cross? Well, first of all, even though I'm always happy to see the church packed on Easter Sunday, uh, I would also like to see it packed on Good Friday. I, 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 I'm always a little disappointed when the Easter service is far more well attended than Good Friday because it's like, okay, um, yeah, he is risen, but, you know, uh, he had to die in order for that to happen, by the way. <laughs> you're, you're kind of missing a big part of it if you skip Good Friday and come Easter Sunday. And I think that says something about our culture. You know, we want, we want all the glitz and glamour of Easter, but we don't really want to remember the cross. But what does Jesus do after he's risen from the dead? He goes to his disciples and shows them his hands and his side. Um, the reason Easter is good news is precisely because the one who rose from the dead is the one who hung on a cross in our place of judgment. And so Good Friday and Easter go together. You know, there's also this um, uh, sad uh, understanding uh, among some that, that Good Friday is when the devil won. And then, of course, God trumps the devil on Easter. Uh, no, God was in control on Good Friday. Uh, the devil didn't win Good Friday. God did. Uh, and, and so we need to see how Good Friday and Easter go together. And this is where the, the Easter hymn written by Dr. Martin, or not Martin, CFW Walther, excuse me, um, when he says, you know, the Satan was triumphant, which is a little bit, like you said, he was not triumphant. He did triumph, but he was not the final triumphant one. When we look at oh, no. this in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the moment Christ dies, it's a great capturing, and I would encourage people to watch this if it's appropriate for you and, you and your family, whoever it might be. But the moment he dies is when the devil screams out in fear because he knew he had lost. It was not yeah. a moment of his triumphant, put up the flag, I've won, but it was a time that he surely had lost. And so that's what's great. This is a time where we do leave the church often in silence. But hopefully we leave with a little smile of joy on our face when we leave. Pastor, one minute left. What's your, what are your last words for our time today? Well, I'm so glad you brought up that passion of the Christ scene because you, you read through Matthew's gospel and the other gospels too. What you see is that the devil is always trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Uh -huh. It's almost like the devil knew that was going to be his end. 
know, and I would argue even when he's on the cross, when Jesus, I, I'm, I would argue that the devil works through the leaders to try to tempt Jesus to come down. Cause remember what they say? It, it, it almost mimics what the devil did during the wilderness. Right. You know, if you are the son of God, come down, you know? Mm. And uh, so I agree with you hundred percent. The devil knew that if Jesus saw this through, that would be it for him. Pastor Tom Eckstein of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota, giving us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 27. Pastor Eckstein, a blessed rest of your holy week, and thank you for bringing us his gifts. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.